Hey, good morning. We are glad you were here today. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Now, for those of you here in the building, you'll see beneath your, each of your chairs is a stone. For those of you at home, you might go get a stone from your front or outside, something. The stone is not if the sermon is good or bad. You will have directions fall in the sermon on what to do with it, but please, until that time, leave it on the ground, okay? It made me nervous first service when there were some people, yeah, you know. Directly after church today, we have a, um, a cookout, and so please, if you're here, join us outside. We're cooking some hamburgers and hot dogs. We have a ministry for out there where you can learn more about who we are. But I would love for you to know each other as we re-engage here at the Orchard in this new season. And as we talk about new seasons, I just want to uh, mention and brag on my staff for a second. Our children's pastor, especially Stacy Mays and our youth pastor, Jesse Terrell, they work so hard through a pandemic to do youth and children and you can imagine how hard that is, but they carved it out. And now as we open back up, we find ourselves um, looking for some leaders who have a passion or a gifting for students or children. And here's the deal. If, if you want to make an immediate impact in God's kingdom, if you want to be, be a part of an effective ministry where you can see things change, well, then after you pass a background check, you are more than welcome to be in our children's ministry or our youth ministry. But that is a great place to start with the next generation of believers. Now, today I'm, I'm going to be talking fast. And for some of you, you think, well, I already do talk too fast. There is so much to get to. I'm so excited about today's sermon. And if first service was any indication, we're in for the Holy Spirit to do some powerful work in our lives. Without further ado, let's go to John 8 verse 2. Now remember, there are no chapter breaks in the Bible. He didn't say like, and now after John 7, we go to John 8. Jesus is just living, and this is the next morning. It says, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, one thing that happens, it's the next morning. The next morning of what? Of last week's sermon. Last week, if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back. It was one that not to be missed as it shows how the Old Testament and the New Testament come together and point to Jesus. And it has a lot of background for what we're going to learn today. So go back and listen to this one, to last week. The night before, Jesus had been celebrating the holiday of Sukkot. The, the festival of tabernacles. And it was the final day of it, the final holy day. And you'll remember Sukkot, it revolved around this theme of water. And what did Jesus do? Remember, he was there teaching about water. It's the holiday. It happened. He stood up and declared some things that I am the living water. And the next morning, after the big final festival holiday, he, the next morning, here he is, back in the temple courts, preaching to whoever would listen and they are gathering around him. When the crowd circled and pushed in, Jesus, it says, sat down and began to teach. And again, John leaves out what exactly Jesus is teaching on here. He doesn't tell us what, this, what the sermon is about, but he does tell us that during this teaching, in the middle of it, there's this chaotic disruption as some people begin to push their way through the crowd. It's the priests. It's the teachers of the law, which means they're the Old Testament experts. It's the Pharisees, the religious powerful, the religious elite. And they were infuriated the night before. If you remember, the night before, Jesus, during the, during the final moments of the festival of Sukkot, he, Jesus had stood up when they were pouring the water, and he had declared, if anyone is thirsty, come to me, and I'll give them springs of living water will flow from you. Jesus had ruined their big finale, and at the end of chapter 7, they were staying up late trying to plan how they would trap him, arrest him, or ruin his ministry. So the very next morning, they got something. 
They have some ammunition. They'd been saving this. It worked out perfectly. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, they made her stand before the group. You can imagine the temple courtyard is filled with, with, with shouts and commotions while in the middle of his teaching as these laws and as these experts in the law and Pharisees push their way through, coming through, make, it, you know, make room, there, and they're jostling people as they push this woman through the crowd into the circle where Jesus has this, he has this empty circle where he is standing and teaching to the crowds and she is pushed into it. Now, these religious elite, they are the ones who are conspiring to ultimately remove Jesus from his ministry, either by discrediting him or getting him imprisoned or much worse. And they bring this woman caught in adultery and have her stand right before him, before the crowds. And so we have Jesus in the temple courts. And, 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 with, and there's probably 10 to 20 religious leaders, we don't know, people of power who've shoved her there, and there's this woman now she's probably disheveled. She's surely humiliated, and she's probably hungover. And let me tell you how I know that. <laughs> what was everybody doing the night before? It was the final celebration night of Sukkot. It was a celebration. It was the Holy Week of Festival. It's the, the final night of the festival. And where do people sleep during Sukkot? Do you remember? They sleep in those tabernacles, those tents, those booths. And so the whole town is camping out, and then the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are also coming, and they're all camping. Sukkot has a celebratory tone to it. They're asking God to forgive them their sins so he doesn't hold the rain, but then they're imploring and celebrating that God would send the rain for the rainy season so they can have a harvest. And, and have you ever been to a festival? You don't, have to, you don't have to admit it if you have. And yeah, even Mountain Fair here in, here in Carbondale, the final night of Mountain Fair, the final band of the final night, people dance like they've never danced before because this is the final. We won't do this again for another year. The final night of the festival is always the biggest, and that is no different here at Sukkot. It's the grand finale. I mean, and, and, and so we have right here, we have camping. Also, a big part of Sukkot was the celebration, the wine. So we have camping and wine, wine and camping, and it's not too hard to see. It's some of these elements probably had something to do with how this woman ended up in the wrong tent the night before, okay? We should be honest. She ends up in the wrong tent, and in the morning, she's caught. She's awakened to this nightmare of being pulled out and pushed bleary-eyed in front of these people, and then she's pushed into the temple courtyard, and finally, in front of this Man, Jesus, and she stands there as the crowd watches. She's made terrible decisions. She's not defending herself. She's simply standing there. She has the religious, powerful elite on one side, the crowds shocked all around, and this teacher in front of her. All eyes are on her, wondering what's happening, until the priests begin to talk, and then their attention goes to the priests, and they say this, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Verse 6, they're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse Jesus. Now, the trap has been set. This woman was caught in the act 
They say in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament, it says that we're commanded to stone such a woman. Well, Jesus, do you believe the Bible? Do you agree with the Old Testament? You see, with that question, every eye leaves the high priest and goes to Jesus. What's he going to say? What's Jesus going to do? And first of all, let me tell you a little bit more about the trap. It's a little, it's, it's more secure and more tight than we think. The Pharisees are correct. The Old Testament law does say if you catch a woman in adultery, then you, there shall be capital punishment by stoning. Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22, 22 is just one of them. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. This woman is condemned by the Old Testament law. There isn't much legal wiggle room for her at all. But the Pharisees aren't just looking for Jesus to make a religious mistake. They want to fully discredit him. They want to take the whole ministry down. And you see, and here's what they have. The Roman Empire, when they would take over a new nation, they would let you practice your religion, but they outlawed ceremonial religious killings, honor killings. And so... This is mentioned actually in John 18, this very thing. The Pharisees bring Jesus before Pilate, the Roman ruler, and they ask him to punish Jesus. Pilate isn't too interested, and Pilate says, you know what, you take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Like, go do it. This isn't a, a legal matter. This is a, this is a religious matter. You go take care of it. And then listen to the Pharisees' reply. But we have no right to execute anyone. No, 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 Pilate, we don't want him flogged. We, we don't want him in prison. We want him dead, and we can't do it. You see, they couldn't rightfully kill the woman caught in adultery. The Roman law declared it. They know this, and Jesus knows this. It's a trap. You see, if Jesus doesn't condemn her, and if he lets her go, he loses credibility religiously with the people. The, the priests will step all over that and say, see, he doesn't believe Moses. You can't trust him. His ministry would be over, and the Pharisees would get their grip on religious power back. If Jesus condemns the adulterous woman by Moses' law, by the Old Testament, then he will be guilty of breaking Roman law and will be imprisoned. And his ministry will be over because he'll be in Roman custody. See, this is a lose-lose situation for Jesus. And the Pharisees know it. Now, they had planned this. They had found their pawn in the tent of another man. And now there they were, and there she was, standing before Jesus, now what do you say, Jesus? The crowd surrounding, they also know these laws. Jesus knows these laws, the Pharisees knows these laws, and the woman caught knows these laws. Teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, command us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They're using this to question, to trap him, to have a basis for accusing him. What is Jesus going to do? He's stuck. What's he going to do? You can imagine being the disciples watching. Can you imagine being John, the author? He's, he's a younger man, and he's sitting there close to his rabbi, and this is unfolding. John knows the law. He knows the, the Roman. He knows what's happening. What is my rabbi going to do? Then you have the, the crowd there. They're enjoying the teachings of Jesus, so they're wondering, what is this teacher going to do? And then you have the smug Pharisees eyeing him, wondering, what is this imposter going to do? And the woman Standing there, humiliated, wondering what's going to be done to me. And here's what unfolds. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with a finger. He didn't answer them. 
He simply bends down and begins to, to write in the dust of the temple floor. But, but the priests aren't done. It's almost as if he's, dis, he's, he's just writing. They keep yammering because it says in verse 7, they kept on questioning him. He's just writing in the dust, and the questions just keep coming. He continues to write. They keep continuing to question. It says, when they keep questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. His writing didn't discourage her. So he stands and says, hey, go first if you're without sin. And this is again in verse 8. He stooped down and continued to write in the ground. He, he, he writes in the dust. That doesn't stop them. He speaks out. And then he sits back down and keeps writing. And here's the truth. We have no idea how much time is passing in this moment. We just see sentences and periods and it happens real quick. Jesus could have been writing for quite a while, maybe a few words, while they're still continuing to question him. He might have sat back down and continued to write while there was a long silence as they, as they put this together. We don't know. But something in what he wrote first, something in what he said and something about what he continued to write so accurately was delivered at these Pharisees, these religious elite, that all the steam left. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. The very leaders who had pushed this woman, who had paraded her through the town streets, into the temple, and then shoved her into the middle of the circle, at the words that were written, at the words that were spoken, they dropped their stones. They walked away. The younger ones first, and the, the younger, or sorry, the older ones first, and the younger, less experienced, more passionate ones, maybe begrudgingly last. And the question's always been, what did Jesus write in the dust? Like, what did he write? What could he have been writing that was so powerful, along with his words, would have sent a lynch mob just skulking off into the crowd? What could it be? There's, there's, there's about three or four main theories, and they're all good. But there's one that I lean in, into here because, because of the dust. When Jesus writes in the dust, I actually believe it is Jesus fulfilling a prophecy. And guess what? If you don't know about the festival that they've just been celebrating, you'll miss it. Which is why I'm so glad you came last week and you remember everything I said. What is happening here has everything to do with what had just happened the week prior and the night before. What was this festival? Again, Sukkot, the festival of tabernacles. All camping in tents to remember how their, their ancestors had camped after leaving Egypt, going to the promised land. And daily, all these people would be watching, remember the water drawing ceremony from last week. They would get the water and parade it through the streets and, and they would watch in hushed sacred silence as the priest would pour the water and pour the blood on the, on the altar. The people were praying for rain for the harvest and asking God to forgive them so it would not hold back the rain. And they had this tradition. They had this tradition of reading certain scriptures at certain festivals on certain nights. So these very priests who were now standing there in the circle with Jesus pushing this woman had just got done with a very intensive work week. They had drawn water. 
They had danced around. It said they played flutes. There, there's, there's writings about how they, they sang and they chanted as the water went through there. They had poured the water, the water on the altar and poured the wine. They had, they had gone to separate places and they had daily read certain scriptures to the people that had to do with Sukkot. In fact, the night before, the holiest night of Sukkot, they had recited a certain scripture in honor of Sukkot and asking for water. You see, not only had they been the ones to recite these, but these priests had been reciting these scriptures every year at this festival. In fact, the older priests would have been reciting these scriptures for many more decades than the younger ones. Perhaps 40 years the eldest priest has been saying these verses. While the younger priest, maybe this is his second year, he's just getting the hang of it, but he's reading the same verses they have for generations and generations on that night. So they were fresh off Sukkot. I want you to listen to what these priests would have read maybe 12 hours before they stand in this circle with this woman. A small snippet from the prophet Jeremiah. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Okay, okay. So far, so good, right? Don't see much connection. But I want you to lean in. I want you to hear what would have been read for generations during Sukkot in the next verse. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. During Sukkot, prayers of blessing for living water, the rain of the harvest, they would read this and, and call the people to repentance. Don't turn away. Don't be the one that's forsaken the living water or your name would be written in the dust. Now, remember what had happened just the night before? Just the night before, at the climax of the Sukkot celebration, when the water festival was at its peak, and they were about to pour it, and Jesus shouted, it says he shouted out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus declared, he is the spring of living water. Those who turn away from me will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Who had the priests and Pharisees turned away from? Who had these religious people forsaken? The spring, the source of living water. And with Sukkot fresh on their minds, Jesus bends down and begins to write their names in the dust. For they had forsaken the Lord. They had forsaken the living water. And then he tells them, you throw the first stone, you who is without sin. And the older priests, perhaps seeing their names in the dust, putting it together, they're sitting there, they're holding their stone, starts to burn in their hand. They drop it. They make their way through the crowd until it's just Jesus and this woman now in this circle. The disciples are around. The crowd is around. But in this circle, just Jesus and this woman, they begin to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now Jesus, he was, he was bent down writing in the dust 
And it says this, he straightened up, looked her in the eye, and asked her, woman, where are they? This is, this is a very private moment. He's not shouting and declaring. He's not making a statement for the crowds. John heard this because he was probably very close. He is talking to this woman's heart and soul. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? The spring of living water, the Holy One of God incarnate meets this humiliated woman's gaze, asking her where her condemners are. Where are your accusers? Can you imagine being her? This is the worst moment of the worst day of your entire life. You're completely humiliated. You're caught in sin. Yes, you did it. But you're used as a religious pawn and thrust into the public so that people can, can decide over your fate. Your sin is obvious. You can't deny it. You deserve, the, you deserve the punishment. You get it. But these group of people, they drag you before Jesus, this, this Jesus, this teacher in the courtyard. He, he didn't speak to you, though. He doesn't speak to you at first. In fact, he just starts writing in the dust. And you're as confused as, as a lot of people. Your head is down. Tears streaming. Is this the day I die? Ashamed, humiliated. Jesus speaks to him. You hear him to speak to the Pharisees. And he bends back down. And with your head down, you begin to hear a sound that would have brought breath to your lungs. You would have heard a sound that would have brought hope to darkness. As one after another, you heard stones dropped. And when you looked up, you found the one face that wasn't confused in that moment. And he's standing right there. And it's Jesus. And he says, has no one condemned you? And you reply through your tears, no one, Lord. No one. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And that's it. This, the scene ends. That's, that's, that's the story. The scene ends. And now there's a lot going on in these verses that I, I left more on the cutting room floor than most any sermon I do. But one of the questions I get about this is, why did Jesus not follow the Bible? Like he's perfect, Right? He, he wrote it. He is the Bible. Like, he's the word. Like, why didn't he follow the law? He lets her off too easy. I've heard that too. I mean, at least throw some gravel at her. Maybe don't like stone her, stone her, but like maybe just teach her a good lesson. Like a, like a good, you know, yeah, that would have done it. But like just to say, go, sin no more. God's own word said she should be punished. Why did he not condemn her? And briefly, let me just show you that Jesus followed the biblical law more than anybody else present at that moment. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. The first question you ask is, where's the guy? Right? Both instances here in Leviticus, it talks about this. It says, bring them both forward. Where's the man? Now, to my knowledge, you know, adultery right here, it would take two people. But the priest grabbed one, strike one. Next, it says this. Second of all, it is the accusing husband who is to bring, it's the jealous accusing husband who is to bring the woman before the priest. Number five, one. The angry husband would bring the woman to the priest and demand and make a ruling. Did you catch that? The husband who's been wrong brings the woman to the priest and the priests make the ruling. By the word of God. 
So that very morning, a very angry and jilted husband might have come to the priest and said, she didn't come home last night, and I found her in Darius's tent, and here she is. And they, instead of following what the Bible would say, they grab her and go, now, now we go to Jesus. And they bring the woman to Jesus. Now, Jesus is not a priest in their religious context. He's not a Pharisee. He's not one of these priests. He's a traveling rabbi. The angry husband would bring the wife to the priest, but here we have angry priests bringing the woman to Jesus, totally disregarding the, the law of Moses. These religious people who were supposed to be correctly dividing the word of God drag her to Jesus straight to him. But there's another ruling. There's, but wait, there's more about stoning in the Bible. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7. Uh, but never put a person to death on the testimony of one witness. There must always be two or three. Check this next part. The witness must throw the first stones. And then the others join in. The witness must throw the first stones. Did you catch this? The witness. Now, so, so, so Jesus, they come to him with the law, and he turns the law back on him. Oh. You guys are so eager to get this stone party started. You throw the first stone. I didn't witness it. Strike three. But wait, there's more. A bonus strike. Deuteronomy 19 gives us details on when witnesses do bring somebody. It says their motives must be this. If a witness turns out to be malicious, they shall be stoned. A life for a life, an eye for an eye. If the, if the witness comes forward with malicious motive or a false witness and the person gets stoned, then guess what? Hey, just go ahead and pick up another stone and we got another one to go through. Malicious witnesses would go next. So, <laughs> Jesus says, let, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. He's not asking in general. Like if you've never sinned, then just throw, throw the first stone. What he's asking here, hey, are, are you maliciously here? Do you have any sin in this, this thing? Be, be, because if you, if you do, it, it, hold on. you should throw first. And if you're a malicious witness, well, just stick around. There's an after party. He's saying, you, you bring this woman to me claiming that, that you're the witnesses. Legally, then you must throw the first stone. And you bring this woman to me saying you're free of motive. And if not, then legally... You're next. See, they brought this trap to Jesus, and they had it all figured out. And Jesus just turns the law, <laughs> he's the author of, on them. Spiritually, these religious elite have no ground to stand on. Their names are written in the dust. They've turned away from the living water. Morally, they have no ground to stand on. They have sinful motive. Legally, they have no ground to stand on on their law because the law requires them to go first. They are completely trapped. They look down. They're taking this in. The words, you must go first. He's without sin. Oh, no malicious motive. My name's written in the dust. The priests, the older priests who've been doing this for generations, they put this together first and... The stone just begins to burn. Just slowly backing away. Dropping their stone. They want nothing to do with this. That's what I believe happened. That's what I believe Jesus was writing. Now, did he? Well, we'll find out someday. But here, you want to know what's most important here? It doesn't matter what he wrote. It doesn't matter. 
If it was that important, the Holy Spirit would have prompted John to put it in here. It doesn't matter what he wrote. It's fun to look at. But what does matter today is who you are in the story. That is what matters. You see, for each of us, somewhere we feel like the woman caught in adultery. We have sins in our past that are hard to even think about, you know? Oh, yeah. Things we've done, things done to us, we don't want to talk, we don't want to think. And if people only knew what we'd done, we all are in some place, have, have, have sin that we think disqualifies us from God's approval. And that we, if we were brought up here in front of everybody, we would be shocked and there would be a stoning of, so that's why the rocks are here apparently, right? You, perhaps some of you are here that you believe your sins are so big that God can't be all that pleased with you. And yeah, there's forgiveness, and yeah, there's, I get it, but when, I, when you think about that stuff, it doesn't make it go away. But Jesus didn't let religious judgment get the victory here. He got on her level. He looked in her eyes. He released her from condemnation of her accusers. And today, you need to know that if you come to Jesus, if you come to Jesus, you are released from the condemnation of your accusers as well. And your accusers are oftentimes the enemy of God who wants to keep you living in shame and guilt. You can come to a church just like this, begin to sing, begin to listen to a sermon, having a, having a normal old time, and all of a sudden, from the out of nowhere, sniped with some shame, ooh, that takes you out of a service, takes you out of volunteering or leading or doing whatever. The enemy of God loves to keep the people of God in shame and sin, thinking you're disqualified from God's best. You have an enemy. You have an accuser. And then, then we have our own conscience that joins right in the party. And Jesus, listen, Jesus would not allow the accusers to stone her. But months later, months later, those accusers wouldn't come for her. They came for him. He didn't stop them this time. They grabbed him. They spit on him. They beat him. They bloodied him till they couldn't even tell who he was. They dragged him. They paraded him through the streets. They humiliated him. Worse than they ever humiliated this girl. They hung him up on a cross and they killed him. They condemned him and he didn't stop it, though he could have. Do you know what that means? It means that when the voice of the accuser comes at you, it says, do you know what would happen if people only knew? Like, what if your sin was on display here and you deserve to get punishment? It means in the instance of this woman that Jesus got in front of it and said, stone me. I take it fully upon me. Any penalty that was yours for your sin, Jesus took. Any and every. He bore the penalty that any of us deserved. And in Jesus, because of our belief in him as Savior, because he didn't stay dead, he rose again. We can walk apart from shame. And the accuser's accusations, if we do it correctly, they hit Jesus. There's no accusation left. The Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ. None. Jesus took the punishment. So for some of us here today, during communion, you need to pray. Jesus, I need you. I have such sin in my background, so much shame in my present, so much accusation consistently coming after me. I need you. I know, I know what it feels like to be the woman caught in adultery because I feel humiliated and ashamed. And you pray right there with your communion. Jesus, you died and you rose again. Take my sin. 
But there's another person in the story. Represents many of us listening here today. It's the unknown man. The unknown man who also did his part of the sinful event. And in many ways, we're, we're like him. You see, we're involved in sin, but it's private. It's secret. It's hidden. But we're guilty. You see, and the woman got publicly set free. And for many of us here today, what we need more than anything is to be privately set free. We're like the unknown man. We have our own sin, just as bad as others, but it's private, private, and it's hidden. And the offer of Jesus is this, the same for the woman. He died, he rose again to take your punishment for your secret hidden sins. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. And today, if you're like this unknown man, what you need is the same thing the woman had, forgiveness. You need freedom as well. And so during communion, your prayer is this. Jesus, I know you died and rose again. Please take this sin from me. Forgive me. Silence my accusers. There's a third group in here. Somewhere in our lives, we are a Pharisee. Somewhere in our lives, we are a religious leader. We carry a stone with us. And it's reserved for those few sins that for some reason we've elevated to be worse than other sins in our culture. Those people or those things. We let certain sins slide. slide. They're not so obvious. Kind of like the man didn't get dragged out here. Yeah, yeah, just stay down. It's okay. Just take the... Like we let some sins slide, but there are some other ones and some other people that, ooh, they need some of God's judgment. And, and we sit there in our homes and we throw our stones at the TV shows and the TV reporters. And we throw our stones at social media. And we throw our stones in conversation about those people, what they've done. But you'll notice in the account, Jesus doesn't let the religious people elevate this one sin above others. He brings their sin into it, doesn't he? You see, in their judgment, they're as guilty as the woman. And according to the biblical law, those priests should have put their stones down and just got there next to her and said, so, okay. And for many of us, we need to remember our good works and our good attendance doesn't put us on any better ground. I'm talking very boldly to to, to Jesus' followers here. Because our lack of adultery or whatever that sin that you think is so much higher doesn't excuse our lack of love or our religious judgment. Jesus, if you watch his life, and we're, we're looking at it in John, so often he goes to those who are broken, who are hurt, who are sinners. He was known to hang out with those people. They called him a friend of sinners. You don't get that on accident. When he was angry, who was he usually most angry with? The religious stoneholders. Who couldn't believe he would hang out with, with those people? Who couldn't believe that he... In John 8, he, he doesn't condemn her. In John 4, the woman with all those husbands, he, he, he should be, Jesus should be throwing, like I said, throwing some gravel at somebody. At least teach him a lesson. I speak to deep people who have written off God and who have written off church. Not because of God, 
but because they've met people and come to contact people who hold a Bible in one hand and a stone in the other. This is not how Jesus asked us to live. We've been guilty of this for centuries and apparently all the way back to John 8, letting our religious pecking order of sins and what we, how we think they should be ordered affecting who gets grace from us and who gets judgment, giving out grace for certain sins that don't seem so bad and, and then judgment and calling for, for judgment on others. God says in, Roman, or in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In which Jesus said, if you're without sin, then you cast the first stone. Orchard, there was one person there that day in John 8 who was qualified to throw a stone. He didn't. And we need to remember this when we go out to a world of those people and thems and those sins. And remember, there's one person qualified, and it's not you, and it's not me. Orchard, I declare today that we are a stone-dropping church. We are not on this earth to be the sin police. We are called to have good judgment, but not sit on the seat of judgment. We're called to have good discernment, good judgment, how we live our lives and who we live our lives, all those things. But we are not called to sit in the seat of judgment, holding a stone. And I know that some of us, our minds bring up, yes, but what about them and what about that? Insert whatever sin or group you think should be put in the middle, prayed to the streets, and we all, you know, get them. Um, when we single out one sin over others like this, when I do that, I, I elevate sin on one side while letting others down the others. I, I am one of these religious experts here in John 8. And the question is this. This is a hard question. And we, uh, I know it's, it's easy to answer, but if, think about it. If you were there in John 8, and that sin that you had elevated, those people you had elevated to that part that really need to be judged, those, if that person was in the circle, and you were there in John 8, would you be holding a stone? Take the woman in adultery out of it and insert whoever they are. Would you be holding a stone? It's a hard question. If, would, you, would you leave John 8 disappointed that Jesus didn't do what you wanted him to do? Because if so, you're going to be disappointed in me in this church. Because we declare the orchard is not a stone-throwing church, it's a stone-dropping church. The one thing Jesus, the one thing the Pharisees did correctly, although very terribly, is they brought the woman to Jesus. They brought the woman to the one place that she needed to be. And we see this all throughout the Bible as friends or family. Bring someone in need who's broken, who's needy to Jesus, the one place they need. That's what we need to do is to bring people to Jesus, but not pushing with a rock and nestling through, but, but with hands of love, with serving, with leading, with loving, with pointing. Here, Jesus, we need to bring people to Jesus. And this woman, when he asks her very privately, where are your condemners? And she says, no one. And she says, the Cairo. She says, Lord, no one, Lord, which I believe, I just believe, is the first step of her conversion. And she was converted by grace, not by judgment. Okay. 
Our calling is to simply bring people to Jesus, and he's the one that cleanses them of their sin. He's the one that transforms them. You know what? It is not our place to go take somebody and clean up their lifestyle and then bring them to Jesus. You know why? Because thank goodness he didn't do that for us. That you didn't have to go clean up your lifestyle and then come get saved at church. You just come to Jesus. And we need to be the church, the people of God, who bring people to Jesus. Orchard, if we can drop our stones, we have two hands free to love our coworkers, our family, our enemies, the they's, the them's, the whoever's. You're going to need two hands to love in this culture, in this society. And so if you're willing today, I want you to reach under your chair and grab your stone and stand with me. So, Orchard, we, as a family and the people of God, we want to be the people who love God and love people and through service and through love bring people and point people to the Savior, the one who can save them, who can cleanse them, who will transform them. And so, Orchard, we will be a stone-dropping church. And may the applause of heaven echo the drops of our stones. And may our worship be fervent. And may as we go into communion, if you are that, that unknown man hidden in sin or that woman who thinks your sin disqualifies you, you can go to the back and pray. Come with me and pray or pray in your chair as you take communion. God, forgive me and save me. Amen? Let's worship.